Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and while you're at it, sign up for our free newsletter. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series on how this thing called the Rule of Law silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing about it. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. My dad was an electrician, worked at the mills, and his car kind of always smelled like the mills, you know, because it sits down there for eight hours a day. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. I want to work out in the woods. I want to be a game warden, a biologist or something. Something, anything else, this native of Longview, Washington named Mike Bridges was convinced. But I listened to my dad, and I'm glad I did. He told me when I was 18, he said, hey, applications are open for this apprenticeship program. I'm not saying you have to do it, but just do me a favor and go take the test, see if you qualify, see where you rank. So I went through the process, and I made it. When I got the interview, I was going to the local community college there, and I only had a couple classes left to take to get my associate's degree. And the committee asked me when I could go to work. I gave what I thought was the right answer, an honest answer, and I said, well, I'd like to finish things I start, and I'm in the middle of a quarter right now at college, so I guess when I get this quarter done, I could I could start right after that. And unfortunately, that wasn't what they were, the answer they were looking to hear, and I got passed over, missed an opportunity. Work wasn't really busy then, so it took me three more interviews. I kept going back and trying to better my interview and I got in on my fourth try so I'm glad I did because I was able to work in different small businesses I worked in cabinet business a small cabinet shop where I did everything from cutting out the material to assembling it to installing cabinets in people's homes and businesses and so I really I don't know if I would appreciate it where I ended up as much working in the building trades as an electrician with the benefits and things that we have is if I would have got in right away. I'm a little bummed that I didn't get in right away because I I have more money in my retirement now and other things maybe be closer to retirement but looking back on it I don't think I would have appreciated it as much not working for some some of the different employers that I work for that didn't have the same type of benefits that I have now. pretty amazing to go from living with your parents having a maybe a you know a car and being a young man and thinking okay I can do this I could probably move out and someday and then all of a sudden getting into a real legitimate program like that and I think within a year of being in the apprenticeship I had a newer car more reliable car bought my first house got married <laughs> all those things that started happening because of my career path so I always just volunteered to help out my union, whatever it was, just because I wanted to give back. Because I just felt like, what a great opportunity that I'd been given to get into the program. And this is the group that's fighting in my best interest to make work opportunities for me. And I just thought, you know, this is where I need to be. People started just seeing that I was paying attention and maybe that I cared not just about what was going on in my life that I, you know, I cared about the union and, and the people in our union. And so 
I'm guessing that's what it was because people just started asking me, would you be interested in running for this board or would you be interested in being president? So it's kind of a combination of, of things, I guess. And it wasn't much. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think it was much. I just think that sometimes it's just things happen and you get opportunities and you can either embrace them or, or not. <laughs> Mike was elected president of the Longview Kelso Area Building Trades, IBEW, Local 48. I want those apprenticeship opportunities for my kids and their kids and everybody's kids in our area because they're, they're great opportunities. Where else can you earn a good living while you're going to school and not have any debt when you're done? I mean, it's just, I'm so thankful for that every day. I have friends that are my age, friends that are younger than me, older than me, that have so much student debt that it's in the 250 range, 250,000 range. It's in some cases more than their mortgage, <laughs> more than my mortgage. I'm just, it's just shocking to me that what young people these days are strapped to as far as having to go to college. And so anytime we can create more of these opportunities in, in apprenticeships or things we can do that maybe don't require a four-year degree or maybe a two-year certificate, get them into a facility where they can make a family wage job. These are truly $100,000 a year jobs, careers, if you work year-round. And if you like overtime and you like working 12-hour days or working Saturdays and Sundays if, if they're available, I know guys that make 150000 working those kind of hours. The whole country seems to be talking about apprenticeships right now, so the timing is right. They realize that we went too far the other way telling every high school student that the only way that they can have a career is if they get a four-year degree. We don't speak against going to college. I think that's great. We have a lot of people that get into our program that went to college and got a four-year degree and they can't find a job and they end up in our programs and they do great and they end up being part of our system. So I just think that it's kind of a wrong message to tell all of our youth that there's only one career path. I was just at one of my um, kids' conferences this week and at the conference they asked my daughter where she was going to go to college and it was interesting. Some of the teachers were more pushy than others. It didn't seem like they were hearing that message that there's other options out there. And when we come back, more of an electrician and accidental union leader named Mike Bridges. His story continues here on Our American Stories. stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of electrician and accidental union leader Mike Bridges and his story. Let's pick up where we last left off. We are working with the school districts, and they're actually reaching out to us. How can we partner with you guys? They're trying to figure out how do we do this apprenticeship thing, and it's easy for us to talk about because the building trades have been doing apprenticeships for over 100 years, so uh, it's a second nature to us. We actually started a a pre-apprenticeship partnership program with Longview School District this year to get these folks, as they get done with high school, they're going to end up with a recognized state credential where they can hand that to our apprenticeship program and if not get them direct entry, get them certainly a quicker pathway into our programs. But to do that, to make that happen, especially to get the folks from the local communities working on local projects where they're not having to travel three or four hours, we need these opportunities to be local. So that's kind of the missing piece that's been missing for a while. The old Reynolds uh, aluminum smelter site. That site used to have, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 employees. So when, when Reynolds shut down, that was a really big hit to our community. But I think having a job and something to focus on, is it's a, it's a sense of pride. And I know the few times that I've been laid off in the trade, you go through that couple weeks of like, Okay, I'm, I'm off. I have I, got, I can catch up on some stuff around the house. And you do that, and then it's like, it's I don't want to say depression, but it seems kind of like that. You know, you want it. Most of us want to be doing something. We want to be able to measure what we've accomplished during the day, and that's what kind of drives I think most people. But once those opportunities aren't there, and you're tried, and you keep getting kicked back, and I think everybody has their limits, and some people turn to substance abuse or other things to help them deal with the, the lack of opportunities. And we see that on a daily basis in our community. And it's, it's sad. I've seen it change in my lifetime. And, you know, there's always been that element, but I've seen it got worse. And it's directly tied to, my opinion, the, the numbers don't lie when you look at the graphs of the decline in these factories shutting down or, or laying off folks. So we're just waiting for our our turn, I guess, for things to boom. The thing is, Longview just doesn't have to wait to see if anything happens to them. There's an employer named Lighthouse Resources that really wants to come to them. Their Millennium Bolt Terminal project hopes to improve one of Longview's ports so they would be able to ship coal from the states of Wyoming and Montana to countries across the Pacific Ocean that are hungry for it like Japan and South Korea. We're talking almost a three-year project, probably between 1,000 and 2,000 building trades jobs easily. There's 150 permanent jobs for the facility. You know, you're probably looking at a $1 billion project, and that's a big private investment into a community that could really benefit from that. Mike said could because the project is being held up by the state government because it has to do with coal, what some call a dirty energy source because when it's burned to make electricity, it emits carbon dioxide and that can increase global warming. The governor's office shouldn't be picking winners and losers based on what the commodity is that they'd like to ship or the industry that they want to bring to our community. The plan all along, obviously, was to stall this thing out. 
Lighthouse Resources applied for its permit back in February of 2012. It took Washington State's Department of Ecology five whole years to complete its EIS environmental impact statement on the project. They're supposed to follow a process and have an answer at the end, and that's all we've ever asked for with Millennium. Um, in any project that comes to our area, you know, let's have a fair, predictable process. When you're waiting one year, then two years, and then three years, and four years, and finally over five years, just for the government to get back to you, to tell you what their ruling, their law is about something, you don't have a rule of law, you have a rule of the unknown. And none of us like swimming in unknown waters when it comes to the government. Especially when you're a business that's already risking a billion dollars on a project. More risk is the last thing you need. I know there's other businesses and projects that are sitting out waiting to see how this thing plays out. We're going to continue to see these projects. One of the things we worry about is, depending on how these things shake out, will that slow down? Will they quit looking at the West Coast? That's some of the fears that, that we have. In April of 2017, the Department of Ecology's much-delayed report came out, and it essentially concluded that the project was fine. But five more months later, Maya Bellin, the head of the Department of Ecology, decided to deny their water quality permit anyway, illegally. She accounted for the environmental impact of the trains that would bring the coal to the port, even though federal law prohibits them from looking at trains. And she accounted for the carbon emissions of the coal, even though the Federal Clean Water Act prohibits them from considering this too. And even though her own department's report found that this Wyoming and Montana coal is cleaner than those of the other countries that Japan and South Korea is currently buying them from, and therefore, this coal would actually help the environment. The EIS actually stated in the appendix that because of the better mining practices, along with the different quality of coal that comes from the Powder River, would actually be a little bit of a reduction in global CO2 emissions. So that was kind of interesting to me that not, not that it's just a neutral, it's actually a, a benefit. But nobody's talking about that because they buried it back in the appendix. It's tough. It's Washington's made a made it kind of a tough um, environment currently to try to do business. There's a lot. There's a lot of people that feel that way on, on both sides of the political aisle. From 12 different labor unions who are fighting for this project to happen, alongside local chamber of commerces, to Montana's Attorney General Tim Fox, who doesn't take political or economic stance, only a legal one, that the state of Washington blocking coal from his state and Wyoming violates the United States Constitution and its Commerce Clause. Think about the way that our country evolved with the 13 original colonies, they were in competition with one another for commerce, for immigrants, and it was not uncommon for states to basically take advantage of another state's situation by, say, barring the importation of 
commodity from the other state in favor of those that maybe grew that commodity in their own state. And the framers were well aware of that and understood that if the states were allowed to do that when the country was eventually established, that it would create chaos, it would be unfair, and it could really undermine this experiment, if you will, that they were trying to do with our republic. And thank goodness they had that kind of foresight and framed the Constitution the way they did so that states like Washington in the year 2018 cannot do what they're trying to do. My new role, it's not a permanent role, but I do enjoy what I do because I got into this to try to make a difference in our community. But I really do miss being out in the field, being able to see something get done at the end of the day. The benefit of uh, being able to go back and say, this is, this is, look at what you did before you walk off the site and say, look, this is what I did, or, or turning the switch on and seeing the lights or the, the motor start up or whatever it is that you're working on is a pretty satisfying thing to have. Um, I wish I could do that every day in the job I do now because it's just tough. You might work on something for six months and not see a change because there's all these different pieces that go with it. And then the victories, I guess, in, in my line of work now are harder to measure. <laughs> and uh, so we celebrate when we do get anything. And if, um, you know, if we do get a, a win with Millennium, we will be celebrating for sure. And great job as always, Alex. And that's another great installment of our Rule of Law series. And here, there's just unlawfulness. You have 12 unions hoping to build this port facility and all the jobs that come with all those unions supporting it. We have the Chamber of Commerce and unions supporting something, folks. How often does that happen? And those are the kind of stories we do here on Our American Stories. The ones where, well, no one else is covering them. And if you have a story like this in your community or something in the government that makes no sense, that has no relationship to the law, just sheer power or ideology, write to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Union leader Mike Bridges' story, Longview, Washington's story, here on Our American Stories. is our soldier divide, and there's a big one in this country. One of our regular contributors is Ben Sledge. Ben's a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he spent time in the United States Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Ops Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here, 
he tells the story of his friend Casey, someone who helped him transition back to normal everyday life after his deployment. It was raining the day Casey died. 14 years earlier, you hunched, covering your face as sun-bleached gravel whipped through your hair and pelted your cheek. The incoming helicopters kicked gravel and sand into those stupid of us enough to wait, or curious enough to discover more. Men ran frantically while pointing and yelling. Some had black smudges across their face. You could only assume was tar or gunpowder. Then they hauled them off the helicopter while yelling to clear a path. Most people remember the first time they've watched someone die. Grandma in the hospital bed whose hand goes slack. The friend in the accident who exhales one last time while his eyes go wide. Yours involve blood and gurgling noises. The bleached earth turning a dark crimson while the stretcher drizzled the nearby ground like light rain. You always remember the gasping noises. It's that noise that sticks out the most. Everything else after that moment is blocked out. It's like trying to open a portion of your mind where you buried a key. But the key is in a safe whose combination you don't know. And you toss that safe to the bottom of the ocean. Never mind the fact you can't remember where you toss the safe or what ocean it's in. Years later, it's the gurgling, gasping noise you remember. And then a rifle, two boots, a helmet, and dog tags. That's what you remember. Casey was there when he had those dreams. The ones about men dying. The ones where you remembered you were all alone in this big green earth. The ones where you felt abandoned and misunderstood. She would cradle your face and whisper, they're there. Our soul often remembers the darkest days of the moments that permanently changed us. As Casey was dying, these were the memories that flooded my stream of consciousness. Coming home from war, facing divorce, feelings of abandonment and loneliness, and the morbid death dreams. Why are you dwelling on some of the most horrific life moments now? I pondered. It wasn't until after her passing that I realized the same lessons she always taught me. She was now teaching me in death. For much of my life, I believed the trauma I endured would affect everything I touched, would last forever, and that some of it was my fault. I helped blow up my marriage being gone all the time. Couldn't stop thinking about how alone I feel. I had no one, and I deserve that. You wonder how to go on with life and whether you'll ever be okay. It'll get better, is the platitude you hear offered by others, but they don't know what to say either. Casey was different. The word she spoke over and over again was a simple one. Endure. It was as if Casey was my personal butler, Alfred, and I was Batman. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne seems stuck in an impossible dilemma and asks his butler for personal advice. Whereas others might have given him a pat on the back and said, Buck up, kiddo! You're the Batman, and you're rich. Alfred instead delivers one of the most powerful lines in the movie. He tells him, Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. You can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. People these days fall apart over seemingly nothing. They didn't get the job they wanted. Life isn't going according to their five-year plan. They're not married or in a relationship. They feel they lack purpose or direction. 
Their waiter got their order wrong. Much of the Western world seems to lack resiliency and the ability to endure hardship, it would seem. We don't know how to process grief, let alone the crises life throws at us. But sorting through our disappointment, grief, and trauma is paramount to becoming a whole and resilient person. In their book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Adam Grant and Cheryl Sandberg explain, we plant the seeds of resilience in ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Siegelman found that three P's can stunt recovery. One, personalization, the belief that we are at fault. Two, pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And three, permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. The three P's play like the flip side of the pop song, everything is awesome, everything is awful. The loop in your head repeats, it's my fault this is awful, my whole life is awful, and it's always going to be awful. As Casey went blind and could no longer walk up the stairs at my house, I knew it was time to endure grief and pain once more. So I gently laid her in the back of my car and drove to the veterinarian. I guess I forgot to mention, Casey was my 16-year-old cat. I never wanted to be the guy who gets overly attached to an animal, let alone falls to pieces when they die. To some degree, it's unhealthy. There are children dying in Syria we need to be more concerned with than Fluffy or Fido. However, when I shared the sentiment in the midst of my grief with my best friend, he reminded me of something. It scares me how attached I am to my dog sometimes. I think the reason why is that with him, it's a different relationship. With my dog, I never have to wonder where I stand with him or if I've let him down. That's a lesson I'm taking to heart to love my wife and friends better. What lesson did Casey teach you? Before I got remarried, I lived with a close friend who played football for Dartmouth. He too had a cat he was obsessed with. We always laugh about an evening we invited two girls over who made fun of us for looking like professional athletes that had an uncanny affection for cats. My old roommate's cat, named Gus, died tragically about a year ago. When he shared what he learned, I realized his lesson was the same as mine. Resilience. His cat was an anchor when he moved to another state, found himself in a job he hated, lived alone, and wanted to kill himself. That cat kept me from killing myself. Who the hell was going to feed him if I was gone? Then over time, I realized he was weathering the changes better than I was. If my cat could make it, so could I. When Gus passed away, despite his grief, he took that lesson to heart and endured. He continues to do so in the midst of some of the hardest situations and decisions he's faced. Perhaps that's the great joy we often miss in the animals we love, the lessons they teach us that help us grow stronger. Whether that's loving someone when they don't deserve it, resilience, patience, or even suffering well, animals seem to endure suffering better than humans, whereas we ask why, they crawl off to be alone. When I arrived at the vet to put Casey down, I tried not to cry in front of the tech. When it came time to put her down, the vet asked me, are you ready for this? That's when the memories I described in the beginning flooded back. There was Casey, cuddling my face when I felt sad and teaching me to endure. 
I was in Afghanistan and Iraq. I say through a knowing smile. I've seen worse. An hour later, I buried Casey in my backyard while it rained. I buried her in the spot where there was no grass growing and most of the vegetation was dead. I figured it was appropriate because even in her death, where she's buried, reminds me that where there's no grass, there's always an opportunity for some to grow. And great job on that, Faith. And thank you, Ben. Ben Sledge's story, his cat's story, Casey, here on Our American Stories. our American stories. And our next story, well, we love this kind of story. It comes to us from the Toy and Action Figure Museum in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. That's right, the Toy and Action Figure Museum. Its founder, Kevin Stark, says it's the first museum to be entirely dedicated to action figures. Take it away, Kevin. My name is Kevin Stark. I am the curator and executive director of the Toy and Action Figure Museum and also the founder of the museum. And I got started, gosh, I started collecting toys a long time ago, back in 1986. The girlfriend I had at the time drugged me to an antique flea market. And I didn't really want to go spend the afternoon looking at antiques, but they had all these cool toys and they were cheap. And so I came out with an armload of toys and. And I said, wow, that was, that was fun. When are we going back? She said, well, it happens every month. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> so I started collecting toys and, and I amassed this huge collection. But even as a kid, I had convinced my parents to let me clean out our basement so that that could be my private play area. And I shared a room with two brothers. So when my brothers found out that my parents thought that was a great idea, you know, they were a little upset with me over it, but my dad said, hey, he came up with the idea and he cleaned it up, so, you know, get lost. <laughs> and I had gotten a job when I was like 10 years old in order for me to be able to go and buy my own toys. So I've actually been collecting, you know, really since I was 10. <laughs> but I've just always been attracted to toys, always enjoyed them and liked them. And then when I'm, you know, when it became my business to actually design them, all the better. In 1990, I got a call to design toys. It was actually a guy I went to school with, and he calls and says, how would you like to design toys for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And I was like, you wouldn't believe what I'm sitting around right now. So I'd already been collecting for four or five years. He didn't know I was a collector, you know, I didn't know he was a designer, and so we just got together, and he said, can you be in L.A. on Monday morning at 9 a.m. for a flight to L.A.? And I was like, you bet I can. <laughs> he had been working for small toy companies, and every time their toy companies got bought out, he lost his job, so he decided to start his own company, 
that would do design work, but mostly write copy for the action figures and toys and create the accessories that go in them. And that's a lot of what we did. We would create uh, sewer maps for the turtles, a lot of the extra things, you know, that went in with the toys. We worked for a lot of different toy companies that don't have an in-house design team. Big, huge companies like Mattel and Hasbro and Kenner. And so a company would come to us and say, we need this designed or we need, like in the case of Toonsylvania that we did for Spielberg and, and Toy Island, was like, we need you to design this line based on a cartoon series. And so that's what we did. We would look at the characters and come up with different ways that uh, they could make toys. Everything from plush toys to wind-ups to action figures to play sets. And of course, we would come up with it. You then had to send the drawings over to the company. They would say yay or nay, or they'd make changes here and there. A lot of times we didn't have a lot of time to do it. The deadlines a lot of times were really quick and really short. One toy line in particular, The Mummy, we did for the Universal Studios movie. We had, I think, two weeks to design and get some sculpts done before the New York Toy Fair. They kind of went for a long time, no, we're not gonna do toys, not gonna do toys. And then two or three weeks before, they said, oh, we're gonna do toys. Can you guys knock this out? And so we were working 24 hours a day, taking like little cat naps on my couch in my office and, you know, getting up and doing more drawing. So sometimes it's very fast work and other times you have lots of time. So, you know, it just varied with the project. I point out to people that come here, there are a lot of doll museums and there are a lot of toy museums, but we are really basically an action figure museum. Our focus is the design and sculpting and art of action figures. So even though we have toys too, most of them relate somehow to action figures, you know, in the way of play sets or vehicles or things like that. So that's what makes us different. And we have over 13,000 action figures in the collection. Most of the collection, 90% of what you see in the museum is from my private collection but we do get some things donated. You know, a funny thing is people say, oh, you must do eBay a lot. I never do eBay. I mean, very rarely have I ever picked anything up on eBay. I personally prefer to go out and see the things I'm purchasing. I like to hold it in my hand and say, is this what I want? And purchase it like that. that that's just what I prefer. Because to, to me, I like the hunt. So really, I go on what I call toy safari. We got a call from a lady in Arkansas one time, and I didn't talk to her, but one of our board members did. And so he calls me up and he says, you wanna go on a road trip? And I was like, what are we talking about? Well, this lady said she had this toy collection she just wanted to donate to the museum. And I said, well, what are we talking about? He said, well, he didn't really know. He said he tried to get her to send pictures and she didn't really know how to do that on her phone, so she only sent like three or four pictures that were of these little tiny figures on shelves, you know. So we just hop in my Toyota 4Runner and drive all the way to Arkansas. Well, she had so much stuff that we piled it all in my car, drove back to Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, 
rented a huge U-Haul truck and went back, still filled that up and my car again because we had no idea what we were getting into. It was her husband's collection and he had passed away and wanted the stuff donated to the museum. And we were like, are you sure you want to do this? Because, you know, we told her she could sell this stuff on eBay or whatever. And she said, no. She said, I'm actually a very minimalist person. I just want all this stuff out of here. <laughs> and, and it was funny because the whole house was packed with toys. And she here was telling me she liked to live very, you know, spartanly. <laughs> My wife and I went to a garage sale one time here in Paul's Valley. And uh, the family, it was just, you know, the, the couple, they had a daughter. And we were mostly going to the garage sale for my wife. You know, she was checking stuff out. Well, they had all these cool boy toys. I'm talking about great stuff that was worth a lot of money. And I was just putting everything in my arms, trying to, you know, pick it all up. And my wife was clear across the way visiting with somebody. And I was like, come here, come here. You know, I said, we need to get this stuff. Well, it turned out the, that the father always wanted a, a little boy, and he got a little girl. So he was just buying her boy toys, too, you know, and uh, I think because he liked them. So I just picked up a lot of really great stuff for next to nothing for garage sale prices and uh, was very happy to, to get them, and they're all in the museum right now. Some of my favorite exhibits in the museum deal with my favorite character, which is Batman. <laughs> in fact, we have a whole bat cave devoted to just Batman. So there are a lot of figures there. And we created a World War II display, which we had both the European campaign and the Pacific campaign all done in 12 inch tall action figures. But we built buildings and everything in order to create a diorama of these action figures and recreated the World War II scenes. Well, the older generation of people who would come in here, they loved that because they could relate to that and a lot of uh, old World War II veterans. And in fact, we had one guy come in who these figures we used are not G.I. Joe's specifically. Some of them are from other companies that are very much accurate figures from World War II. Anyway, this one figure has a shoulder patch on it, which was a paratrooper outfit, paratrooper unit. Well, that, that guy, that was his unit, okay? <laughs> he couldn't believe that we had an action figure of his unit in World War II. He was just blown away, and we had a great time talking about it. Most everyone finds something that they can relate to and uh, that, that they're amazed at, you know. Uh, we have people who come in and think, you know, why do I want to be in here? I'm, I'm only here because my husband's here or whatever. And, and then they see stuff they had as a kid. And really, we're less about toys and more about nostalgia, more about your childhood. People come in here, they almost always leave happy, you know, <laughs> so that's always a great thing. And you've been listening to Kevin Stark, and he is the founder of the Toy and Action Figure Museum in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. And that's about an hour due south of Oklahoma City. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, check it out. And he's so right. These action figures are about so much more than the actual material figure. They bring back memories. It's like music itself brings you back to a place. And, and it makes you happy going into a place like this. We love telling stories 
about folks like Kevin Stark. 13,000 action figures, most from his own private collection. And my goodness, that, that wife seemed to be real happy to get rid of all of her husband's stuff, the things we live with when we're in love and when we're married. Again, the first museum of its kind dedicated to action figures. Yes, there are doll museums. Yes, there are toy museums. But in Kevin Stark's mind, he had to be the world's first museum dedicated to action figures. His story, the story of a museum of a man's making, here on Our American Story. is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and this next story is one of our favorites. Much of what America and the world knows about Doc Holliday comes from movies and TV. Victor Mature played Doc in John Ford's My Darling Clementine in 1946. Kirk Douglas played him in 1957's Gunfight at the OK Corral. In 1993, Val Kilmer played Doc Holliday in Tombstone, my wife's favorite. And a year later, Dennis Quaid in Wyatt Earp simply became Doc Holliday. But historians agree no movie portrayal has done real justice to his story. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Hollywood, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. He's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath with the story of Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday was not only one of the most colorful characters in the Old West, but also one of the most feared. He acquired the nickname of Doc, honestly, earning a degree in dentistry and practicing in several towns. However, he eventually spent nearly all his time as a professional gambler and occasionally as a gunfighter. He had a vicious temper and feared no man, perhaps because tuberculosis had already given him a death sentence. Doc Holliday is born John Henry Holliday in 1851 in Griffin, Georgia, about 40 miles south of Atlanta. His parents are of South Carolina pioneer stock of Scotch-Irish and English ancestry. Doc's father, Henry Holliday, is an attorney who fights the Indians in 1838, the Mexicans in 1846, and the Yankees in 1861 rising to the rank of major in the Civil War before being forced by illness to resign his commission. Doc has a comfortable middle-class childhood and receives a good education. His mother, Alice, is a classic Southern belle. She teaches him manners and etiquette, while his father regales him with war stories and tales of survival. Doc is only nine years old when the Civil War erupts in 1861. Three years later, the family flees General Sherman's march to the sea and moves farther south to Valdosta, where Doc is enrolled in the Valdosta Institute and studies all the subjects common to classical education, including rhetoric, history, and Latin. He wishes that instead of studying, he was fighting the Yankees. Nonetheless, Doc is a good student and receives an excellent education considering the Civil War, which by the fall of 1864 is ravaging Georgia. 
Here's Doc Holliday biographer Gary Roberts. He was popular. He was good on the dance floor. He learned all the proper social graces. Uh, he was polite. And he seems to have gotten along well with most people. But he also had a, an ornery side. They tell a story that uh, a boy challenged him to a duel. Now, all of the friends, the people of, of these two boys, assumed it would be, was going to be a fake duel. They were going to load pistols with powder and shoot powder at each other, and it was just going to be a make-believe duel. But John Henry, they said, showed up with a loaded revolver and said he would use his own gun for the duel. Well, needless to say, the other boy backed down very quickly. So he had a streak in him. In September 1866, after two years of painful suffering, Doc's mother dies of tuberculosis, known then as consumption. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and Victoria Wilcox, author of Southern Sun, the Saga of Doc Holliday. They called it consumption because it sort of consumed you. It was a very long, slow disease, and it would really eat you away from the inside out. And the classic way to die of consumption was really to suffocate. From 1800 to 1870, one out of five deaths in America was attributed to consumption. He's always been close to his mother, and her death comes as a great blow. His bad temper, which he inherited from his father, worsens. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed, boyish-looking 15-year-old John Henry Holliday is not physically imposing. But as other boys learn, he is no one to trifle with. In 1870, Doc is off to the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, considered one of the best dental schools in the nation. At just 20 years of age, Doc graduates in 1872 near the top of his class and begins practicing in Atlanta during the summer. Here's Professor Arnett Gaston and Victoria Wilcox. He graduates so early in age that it was difficult for him to set up practice because he wasn't old enough yet. A clear testimony to his achievement, his critical thinking skills, and he was good. Doc Holliday was the epitome of a Southern gentleman, which meant that he was mannerly and likely also hot-tempered, all those things that go along with living in the South during the Civil War and Reconstruction. There's a story that a gold crown he made for a girl's molar was still in place when she died at the age of 102 in 1967. Here's Old West historian Stephen Shaw. He came home, he opened up his own practice with another gentleman. Here's a young man, 21, 22 years of age, uh, six foot tall or almost, a doctor, very good looking according to the records, a good catch for any woman. Doc would have married a genteel woman and started a family. At night, he would sit by the parlor fire in his comfortable Georgia home, and he would die in old age, surrounded by loved ones. <laughs> Instead, Doc Holliday starts coughing. Doc begins to rapidly lose weight, has night fevers, weakness, and his coughing up of blood begins to interfere with his practice. He goes to a doctor and is found to have, like his mother, tuberculosis, at the time a fatal disease. The cause isn't known and there is no cure. He is given six months to live. However, he is told that the drier climate of the American West might prolong his life 
by as much as two years. Rather than die bedridden, Doc begins packing. The family is upset. No one more than his cousin, Maddie Holliday, a beautiful blonde who has had a crush on Doc for years. She will correspond with Doc and pine for him. The biggest problem, if this is a case, was that while first cousins marrying was very common in 19th century life, it was not common among Catholics, and she was Catholic. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue here on Our American Stories and the story of Doc Holliday. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Maddie eventually enters the Sisters of Mary convent in Savannah. Doc Holliday boards a train for Dallas, Texas to, as they say, die with his boots on. Here's entrepreneur and Old West collector Bill Koch. He knew that he had a short life and then he would think that he might as well be a little more aggressive or a little more of a wiseacre than he would normally and if he got killed he'd think of it and say well and be less painful than being shot with a bullet than it would be to die from consumption but first doc opens a dental practice Although he does excellent dental work, his coughing fits again cause his practice to decline. More and more, Doc turns to gambling for income and has surprising success. He has a memory for cards dealt, can quickly calculate odds, and can handle a deck with extraordinary dexterity. He also possesses an excellent poker face. The knowledge of his imminent death make it easy for him to hide his emotions and draw the next card, or when necessary, draw his gun. On New Year's Day, 1875, Doc gets into his first documented shootout. It's with the proprietor of a saloon, Charles Austin, who goes by the nickname Champagne Charlie for the popular song of the time. The song is lighthearted, and so is the report in the Dallas newspaper. Dr. Holliday and Mr. Austin, a saloon keeper, relieve the monotony of the noise of firecrackers by taking a couple of shots at each other yesterday afternoon. The cheerful note of the peaceful six-shooter is heard once more among us. No one is hit and all is forgiven. Doc decides it's a good time to leave the state and pursue the roving life of a gambler, chasing the next big pot from boomtown to boomtown across the West. He arrives in Denver during the summer of 1875 and goes to work as a faro dealer at John Babb's saloon. It's not long before he gets into a close quarters fight with Bud Ryan. Both men draw knives and slash away. Both are wounded, Ryan seriously. 
On the 4th of July, 1877, in Breckenridge, Texas, Doc gets into a fight with another gambler, Henry Kahn. Here again is Victoria Wilcox. And according to this story, Holiday pulled a cane and hit him, and Can pulled a gun and shot Holiday. We don't know which man was in the right or the wrong. We don't even know what they were fighting about or whether they were both just drunk and disorderly. But the newspaper went on to say that Holiday had been killed and Can disappeared from town. We know the report is at least a little bit inaccurate because, of course, Holiday was still alive and he actually returned back to Dallas. Doc slowly recovers and, when healthy, moves to Fort Griffin, Texas, to deal cards at pugilist John Shaughnessy's saloon. While in Fort Griffin, he meets and falls for Mary Catherine Haroni, a curvaceous 26-year-old better known as Big Nose Kate. Well, Kate doesn't actually have a big nose, but her nickname comes from her nosy nature. Hungarian-born, Kate works as a dance hall girl and occasionally as a prostitute. She is described as highly intelligent, tough, stubborn, and fearless. It's also at Fort Griffin, where Doc meets a man who will change his life from Denison Gambler to legend. 30-year-old Wyatt Earp is serving as a deputy U.S. Marshal and has come down from Dodge City, Kansas, looking for an outlaw. Doc and Wyatt hit it off immediately. It's the start of the Wild West's most famous friendship. One evening in 1878, while in Fort Griffin, Doc is arrested for killing a bully during a card game. Although it is done in self-defense, Doc is jailed and a lynch mob begins to form outside. But Doc has an ally. Kate intervenes, setting fire to a barn in the center of town. While everybody runs to put out the fire, she puts a gun on the jailer and tells him to open the door. Well, boys. Doc and Kate escape north it's been fun. to the biggest boom town of them all, Dodge City, also known as Hell on the Plains, and joins up with Wyatt, who is working as the assistant city marshal. Here's Old West historian Andrew Nelson. Dodge City of the 1870s was one of the most notorious of frontier towns. It was a town with no law, where buffalo hunters, soldiers, vagrants made hay of the town every night. Doc establishes a dental practice, but spends more of his time gambling than drilling and filling teeth. He's dealing cards at the Long Branch Saloon when into the saloon come a half dozen wild characters, a ragtag gang of cattle rustlers, stagecoach bandits, and thuggish outlaws led by Ed Morrison, a man who has been humiliated by Wyatt in Wichita several years earlier and has been itching to get even. They begin shooting their guns into the air and harassing customers. Hearing the gunfire, Wyatt runs into the Long Branch only to find six deadly characters with their guns leveled at him. Morrison warns him, Pray and jerk your gun. Your time has come, Earp. Wyatt reckons he's dead, but Doc steps up behind Morrison, puts a gun to the outlaw's head, and tells him and his boys to drop their guns. Do what he says, boys. They comply. Wyatt says Doc saved his life that day, and Wyatt never forgets what Doc has done for him. When word comes of a silver strike at Tombstone in Arizona Territory, several of Dodge City's gamblers and gunslingers head west. 
Doc travels with Kate. Along the way, they spend some time in Las Vegas, New Mexico, where Doc decides to open his own saloon. Here's Victoria Wilcox. Of course, Doc was in trouble with the law again because Las Vegas had laws just like all western towns did against operating gambling games in houses of spiritous liquors. So he just did what other businessmen did and paid the fines and went right on operating his gambling games. He also had arrests for carrying a deadly weapon, which was also part of business in a saloon because a saloon owner was expected to police his own business and had to be armed to protect his patrons from violence. One of the patrons is former Army Scout Mike Gordon. After a dispute, Gordon steps out into the street and fires a couple of rounds into the saloon. Gun in hand, Doc comes running outside and drills Gordon. He's mortally wounded and dies the next day. By September 1880, Doc arrives in the violent boom town of Tombstone, Arizona, joining the Earps in what is a factional fight to control the town. The heart of the Tombstone story has to do with the growing animosity between the Earp faction and what's called the Cowboy faction. The Cowboys run a lucrative operation, rustling cattle and robbing stagecoaches. They're all handy with guns, including William Brocious, better known as Curly Bill, who shoots to death Tombstone City Marshal Fred White. Johnny Ringo and Frank Stilwell are also members of the cowboy faction, with reputations for fast and fancy shooting. Leading the rustling are Old Man Clanton and three of his sons, Ike, Finn, and Billy, and their close friends, the McLowry brothers, Tom and Frank. The cowboy faction has Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Bean, County Supervisor Mike Joyce, and the publisher of the Daily Nugget, Harry Woods, on its side. The Herb faction consists of the five Herb brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, Morgan, James, and Warren, and Doc Holliday, Judge Wells Spicer, Tombstone mayor and publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph, John Clum, and several prominent businessmen. Virgil Earp is both a deputy U.S. Marshal and the city marshal of Tombstone. The Earp faction could be called the Law and Order faction, but the Earps and associates are as much concerned about their business interests and who controls the town as about law and order. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath telling the real story of Doc Holliday. And by the way, he's doing his best to synthesize many of the stories that are out there, but in a far greater depth and detail than we ever experience while just watching a movie or watching a TV version of the story. And when we continue, the rest of the remarkable story of the life of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
we continue with the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories, and we return to Roger McGrath. Various members of the cowboy faction are fond of drinking in Tombstone saloons, firing their guns, and generally raising hell. They've also been heard threatening to kill the Earps in Holiday. Virgil gets the city council to pass an ordinance stating that upon arrival in Tombstone, cowboys must deposit their guns at various locations in the city. A countdown to the most famous gunfight in Western history begins in a bar. Several of the cowboys arrive in town on October 25, 1881 and begin drinking and gambling. Doc Holliday, who's also drinking heavily, gets into an argument with Ike Clanton in the Alhambra Saloon. Before it turns deadly, others interfere, and Wyatt Earp walks Doc to his quarters and tells him to sleep it off. Here again is Gary Roberts. The next morning, after a peculiar thing happened, and that is that Ike Clanton and, and Virgil Earp stayed up most of the night playing cards with each other in the same card game. But the next morning, a while before Virgil or anybody else had gotten up, Ike Clanton is already walking the streets looking for the Earp brothers. Ike stays in the saloons and around mid-morning retrieves his guns from the West End Corral where he had deposited them. Ike's still drinking and now he's threatening to kill Holiday when he sees him. Upon hearing this, Doc crawls out of bed, sharpens his fatalistic wit and cracks. If God lets me live long enough to get my clothes on, he shall see me. <coughs> Virgil Earp is alerted and taking Morgan Earp, his deputy, with him. They find Ike with a revolver on his hip and a Winchester in his hand. Morgan confronts Ike while Virgil approaches from behind. With the drunken Ike focusing on Morgan, Virgil knocks him senseless using a revolver as a club. Morgan and Virgil disarm Ike and drag him to the courthouse, where he's fined $25 for violating the city ordinance. He's told he can retrieve his guns when he is leaving town. Here's Jeff Moray. Virgil would have been justified in killing that client. And I think it's a mistake that uh, the Earps make. The, they're, they're too lenient with Ike. Basically, what they do all morning long is allow Ike to build a head of steam. He gets angrier and angrier. What's bizarre about it is, it seems the more you ignore this fellow, the angrier he gets. They keep thinking he's going to finally drink enough, go to sleep, and he'll be out of their hair. And it never happens. While all this is going on, Wyatt Earp pistol whips Tom McLowry and leaves him bleeding in the street. Early afternoon, finds Ike Clanton and Tom McLowry in a doctor's office getting their head wounds stitched. At the same time, Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry ride into town and stop at the Grand Hotel. They learn of the beatings of their brothers and don't deposit their guns. Within minutes, they join up with their wounded and unarmed brothers on Fremont Street, not far from the OK Corral. The day is cold and windy. There's a dusting of snow in places. Virgil Earp gathers his forces, Wyatt and Morgan Earp, but not Doc. Where are you going, says Doc. 
We're going to make a fight, replies Wyatt. Well, you're not going to leave me out of it, are you? This is none of your affair. That is a hell of a thing for you to say to me. It's going to be a tough one. Tough ones are the kind I like. Here's Old West historian and gunfighter Drew Gomber. Accompanying the Earps down to the OK Corral was a big deal because, you know, he didn't have to go, which uh, would indicate loyalty in the extreme. You risk your life for, for your friend. All are armed with revolvers, but Virgil gives his ace in the hole Doc Holliday a Wells Fargo 10 gauge double barreled shotgun to hide under his overcoat. He also deputizes right. Doc. Go to it, boys. Here's Old West historian Tom Ross. Virgil had other deputies. He doesn't take those deputies, he takes his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. And then he drags along Doc Holliday. This is like bringing a match to a party full of gas cans. The four lawmen walk shoulder to shoulder down the center of Fremont Street and find the cowboys in a small 15-foot-wide, dusty, vacant lot next to Fly's photography studio. Here again is Drew Gomber. This is only a 15-foot-wide alley that contained nine men and two horses. They were so close that when they initially entered the alley, Doc took his shotgun and pressed it right into Tom McClowry's belly. Then he took a few steps back. So these guys, it was up close and personal for everybody. Virgil calls for Billy Clanton and Frank McClowry, the only two cowboys armed, to surrender their guns. They refuse. What happens next is a matter of great debate. Whiter probably fires first, hitting Frank McLowry in the stomach. Billy Clanton fires at nearly the same time. Unarmed Tom McLowry tries to take cover behind a horse and reach for a rifle in a scabbard on the horse, but Doc Holliday steps to the side and lets both barrels of the shotgun roar. Tom McLowry staggers into the street and collapses. Unarmed Ike Clanton takes off running. Meanwhile, Virgil Earp fires around and hits Billy Clanton in his gun hand. Billy keenly switches his gun to his other hand and fires, drilling Virgil in the leg. Morgan Earp fires around and hits Billy in the chest. Despite suffering several wounds, Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry continue firing. Morgan Earp is hit in the shoulder and Doc Holliday in the hip. Wyatt Earp is untouched. Doc finds himself looking down the barrel of Frank McLowry's pistol. McLowry says, I've got you now. Doc's calm response is characteristic. Blaze away, you're a daisy if you do. McLowry fires and a bullet rips through Doc's coat. Doc fires and a bullet rips through McLowry's head, killing him instantly. Both Billy Clanton and Tom McLowry are barely clinging to life. They're carried into a nearby house and within minutes are dead. Analysis of Doc's movements at the OK Corral show him to be a master in tactical combat. Here again is Jeff Moring. His job is to protect the flank, not to let the cowboys out a lot so that they can flank the Earp brothers. What's peculiar about Doc's performance in the gunfight is how much walking he does. He traverses more ground than any other participant. It takes just 30 shots and 30 seconds of gunfighting at the OK Corral to write another chapter in American history. 
when the gun smoke clears, three cowboys are dead. Here again is Victoria Wilcox. The story of the gunfight went out across the telegraph wires and hit all the newspapers in America and made instant celebrities of all the participants. In a country that was enamored with all things Wild West, this was the most iconic Western battle of them all. The event is highly controversial in Tombstone, and the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday are put through a month-long hearing before Judge Wells Spicer. Testimony from witnesses is wildly contradictory. The Tombstone epitaph argues the Earps and Holliday were only doing their duty as lawmen. The Daily Nugget argues they'd be tried for murder. Judge Spicer finally rules there's not enough evidence to proceed with a murder trial. Therefore, this court is adjourned. And when we come back, we're going to continue with a remarkable story of Doc Holliday, the full story of Doc Holliday. And you're hearing from some of the best Western historians in the country, and we love bringing you these stories of the American West. And we've brought you dozens by now, including the ultimate Western story, which was, of course, the Lewis and Clark story. And we've had dozens and dozens of stories about the most epic road trip ever. More on the life of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Doc Holliday, we last heard from Judge Spicer, who ruled that there was not enough evidence to proceed with a murder trial against the Earps or Doc Holliday. Let's pick up from there with Roger McGrath. Therefore, this court is adjourned. The Cowboys are incensed by the failure to proceed with the trial. They issue a public death threat to Judge Spicer in the Daily Nugget. The real problem is the town has been so polarized that there's no appeasing the losing side. The Cowboys aren't interested in PR. They're interested in revenge. Ike Clanton wants to get the men who killed his brother. And they feel the whole system has let them down. Word spreads through Tombstone that the Earps and Doc Holliday are targeted for death. Late on a December night, Virgil Earp steps out of the Oriental Saloon and into the blast of a shotgun. The buckshot from the unseen assassin shreds his left arm and rips into his left leg. Miraculously, Virgil survives, but his left arm is rendered useless for the rest of his life. Three months later, in March 1882, Morgan Earp is shot while playing a game of billiards. The shot comes through an open window of the billiard parlor and drills Morgan in the stomach. He lingers for an hour and dies in Wyatt's arms. For Wyatt Earp, the killing of Morgan was a profoundly upsetting incident. From now on, he will be a law unto himself. The question over the years is, was he, a, was he a force for justice, or was he an expression of the law gone wrong? Uh, and that's a difficult question to answer. But he will be 
the judge, the jury, and the uh, execution. Wyatt Earp is now a deputy U.S. Marshal, and with Doc Holliday's encouragement, decides it's time to go on the offensive. The first order of business, though, is to get Virgil and his wife safely out of town. Wyatt deputizes Doc and Warren Earp and two others, Sherman McMaster and Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, to escort Virgil and his wife to the train station in Tucson. At the station, they spot Frank Stillwell. The man has been bragging that he fired the fatal shot into Morgan Earp's stomach. Stillwell is hiding behind a railroad car as the men close in on him. Wyatt lets a shotgun roar, and Doc opens up with a revolver. How many others fire is not known, but Stillwell's body is later found riddled with buckshot and bullets. One of the witnesses says he'd never seen a man who'd been more badly shot up. And uh, from now on, there's no turning back from Wyatt Earp. Uh, this is a, a major change in his career. He still views himself, I believe, as bringing justice, but he clearly realizes he's now outside the confines of the law. This was the beginning of, of real trouble for the Earps. Uh, and it made it clear that Wyatt was interested in more than just uh, arresting people. This Where had become he? personal. A Tucson Justice of the Peace issues arrest warrants for Wyatt and Doc and the others. But by the time he does, they are long gone and armed to the teeth to hunt down the killers of Morgan and the attempted assassin of Virgil. Joined by Texas Jack Vermillion, they head for the ranch of Pete Spence, one of the leaders of the cowboy faction. Spence is not there, but they find one of his hands, Indian Charlie Cruz, Indian Charlie. and dispense some Western justice upon him. What becomes known as the Vendetta Ride is now at full gallop. Wyatt Earp's Vendetta Ride can be looked at as almost an Old Testament type story. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And if you really think about that, what that type of approach fosters is the idea of a natural law. You have the natural law and you have the civil law. And those who support Wyatt Earp would say he was following the natural law in the course of actions he took after the killing of Morgan. Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the other Vendetta Riders next surprised Curly Bill and eight other cowboys at Iron Springs, about 30 miles northwest of Tombstone. Earp lets loose with a shotgun, nearly cutting Curly Bill in half. The other cowboys return fire, and the Vendetta Riders are forced to retreat. Texas Jack Vermillion has his horse shot from under him, but Doc Holliday dashes back through heavy fire to rescue his fallen comrade. Doc later says, Our escape was miraculous. The shots cut our clothes and saddles and killed one horse, but did not hit us. I think we would have been killed if God Almighty wasn't on our side. After the Curly Bill episode, the Earp Posse decides it's time to leave Arizona because of the pressure of the posses that are chasing them. Uh, with the assistance probably of two governors, Wells Fargo and company, maybe the Santa Fe Railroad and the U.S. Marshal's office, they uh, go to Albuquerque and from there into Colorado. 
at Pueblo, Colorado, they part company. Wyatt going to Gunnison and Doc to Denver. Doc is arrested in Denver in May 1882 on the Arizona warrant for the murder of Frank Stilwell. All of a sudden, Doc has support coming out of the woodwork. There is uh, Bat Masterson comes to town and begins to argue for him. There's a newspaper man named E.D. Cowan who is working on his behalf. So all of these people are saying to the governor, don't send him back. And so what happens is that the governor of Colorado looks over the papers and says, there is a, already a charge against Doc Holliday in Pueblo, and we can't extradite him to another state when there is an outstanding warrant against him here in Colorado. By the way, that's called now in Colorado and other places, holidaying, filing charges of one crime to prevent applying warrants for another crime. Doc returns to gambling to support himself, but tuberculosis is ravaging his body, and his once vaunted skills are beginning to deteriorate. He bounces from town to town, Denver, Pueblo, Leadville. In a Leadville saloon, in March 1885, Doc is in his last shooting scrape. When Billy Allen tries to collect the debt Doc owes him and threatens the frail consumptive, Doc shoots Allen. Doc is arrested and put on trial, but a jury finds him not guilty on the grounds of self-defense. Doc's last days are spent in the health resort of Glenwood Springs. He moves there in May 1887 and begins soaking in the hot springs and inhaling the sulfurous vapors. Here again is Bill Koch. Why would Doc go to a springs that had a lot of sulfur in it? I mean, that just hastens his death. And he was medically trained, but it shows how primitive medicine was in those days. Over the years, he has never stopped corresponding with his cousin, Maddie Holliday. Now his letter writing increases. She urges him to turn to God. He seeks out the local priest, Father Edward Downey, and it's not long before the Irish cleric baptizes Doc in the Catholic faith. By the fall of 1887, Doc Holliday is bedridden. After all his narrow escapes, he finds it ironic that he won't die with his boots on. On the morning, of November 8th, he calls for a nurse to bring him a jig or a whiskey. Doc sits up in his bed and throws back the shot. He looks at his bare feet. This is funny, he says, and then falls back onto the bed and dies. John Henry Holliday is but 36 years old. Here's Gary Roberts and Victoria Wilcox. If you think about it, and you go to see movies about uh, all of this. The character who wins in the movies every time, who puts Wyatt Earp in the shadows, although he's supposed to be the hero, you forget about Wyatt Earp and you, and you concentrate on Doc Holliday. He'd done more in 36 years than most men ever dream of doing. He traveled across the country and seen history being made, and he had become part of American history. White Earp later says of him, Doc was a dentist whom necessity had made a gambler, a gentleman 
whom disease had made a frontier vagabond, a philosopher whom life had made a caustic wit, a long, lean, ash-blonde fellow, nearly dead with consumption, and at the same time the most skillful gambler and the nerviest, speediest, and deadliest man with a six-gun I ever knew. And great work as always to Greg Hengler and thanks as always to Roger McGrath, who's our regular contributor for all things American West. And, you know, it's interesting. Reality, it's always, in the end, more compelling than fiction. And we try to get out of the way and deal with and talk to the best historians we can on any number of subjects relating to this nation's great history. It's a fundamental part of our mission here at Our American Stories is to tell the story of America to Americans. And again, thanks to all the folks who contributed and helped, and we'd love to hear your ideas about stories about the American West. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The story of John Henry Holiday, Doc Holiday, not an ordinary dentist, classically trained, great wit, a great mind. In the end, with little left to live for, he decides to live a life as full as he can, and he does. The legend, the reality, the story of Doc Holliday here on Our American Stories.